So my name is Brooklyn. I'm here with Kansas State Challenge. Um, Kansas is a lot colder than right now. So I'm excited to be here. It's literally like 20 degrees there. So the 50 is not bad for me. Um, so a little bit about me. I grew up in Kansas City my whole life. I'm a huge Chiefs fan. I know Nate talked about that last night, which some of you may not love that, but that's okay. Um, has anyone in here been to Kansas before? Okay, that's more than I thought. Wow. Well, I mean, I've lived there my whole life, so I don't really know any different. Um, I moved to Manhattan, Kansas, which is where K-State is for college. And I got my undergrad in interior design. And then my last two years of college, God just really drew my heart towards ministry, towards college ministry specifically. Um, I had been involved in Challenge my whole college um, time at K-State, and I just loved it, and I wanted to get more involved. And so I did what we have is called the Challenge Internship. So it's two years where you're kind of you're not on staff, but you're in between. And so right now I'm in my second year of that, and I love college ministry. I love my job. I don't know how long I'll be doing this, but I hope for a long time. And after this year, I'm moving to Pittsburgh, Kansas, which is even smaller than Manhattan. I don't, I don't expect any of you to know where that is, but um, I'm moving there to help plant a challenge with some other staff. So it's scary and exciting, but I love seeing how God has guarded, guided my heart to go there and take steps of faith outside of my comfort zone, um, which is also doing this workshop. I've never spoken like this before, um, but I have a deep passion for God and for his word. And so um, I'm excited to be up here and share with you guys about a book that has really just transformed my faith and just my view of God. Um, so today we're going to be walking through a book of the Bible um, called Habakkuk. Have any of you read the book of Habakkuk? Yes? Okay. It's not a super popular book. I found it kind of randomly and I had never heard of it. I didn't even really know how to pronounce it. And so um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk. It's kind of in the middle, um, towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, so while you do that, I'm just going to share a little part of my story and the reason why I love this book. Um, I got the chance to study this book for six months with an intern project that we did. So I just, I love this book so much and I have a deep passion for it. But kind of how I found this book, um, my spring semester of my junior year was just one that was defined by waiting, waiting to see God move in a specific situation. And I didn't feel like I saw him waiting and I was really discouraged. Um, one of my roommates at the time was just struggling a lot with depression and anxiety and just feelings of hopelessness and her life just felt so defined by it. And so every day she fought with this battle and I was kind of on the front lines with her just because I lived with her. I wanted to help her process what was going on in her life. Um, and it really was a joy. It's a joy to just stand next to people um, as they're going through that and just be a source of truth. Um, I wanted to help her cover the lies that she believed and felt defined by and just like show her the truth of Jesus. And I wanted her so deeply to feel his presence um, and, sh and feel hope in him in the midst of all these feelings of depression and anxiety. But she just felt so far from God, like she, nothing she could do would get her closer to God. Um, and so we would pray every single day that God would just reveal himself to her, that she would feel that she would be captured by his attention and just that he would pour out the truth of who he is over her um, as she was battling all of these thoughts and feelings. But we didn't see him doing that. Um, and things got worse pretty quickly. She was struggling with self-harm and suicidal thoughts and eventually had to be put in an inpatient crisis stabilization unit so she wouldn't be like of harm to herself. Um, and that completely broke her and it broke me. I was like, God, why didn't you fix this? Like, 
I was confused on why I didn't see him doing anything. I just felt like he was being silent. And so that night I went home after I dropped her off at this unit and I was like, I don't know what I need, but I know I need Jesus. So I just opened my Bible to a random page. I was thinking I would hit a Psalms and just read that for encouragement, but I hit the book of Habakkuk, which I had never really read before. Um, and as I read this, I felt like my thoughts and feelings were just written out in front of me, like so perfectly aligned with the thoughts of Habakkuk and what was going on in his life and the story. And I thought, like, why is this happening? Is God even listening to us praying? Is he listening to us as we cry out to him? Like, how long is she going to feel like this? And reading with this book, um, I just saw how Habakkuk wrestled with God and embraced God, with it was just exactly what I needed to hear in that moment, and it kind of set this framework um, for where I needed to go next, to believe that God was working, even though I didn't see it. Um, I just felt a sense of peace, and so have you ever felt like that in your life? Have you ever felt like your prayers were just full of lies and how longs, and you didn't see where God was moving? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you have a story very similar to mine where you are walking with a friend through a really discouraging situation. Or maybe you are the friend. Maybe you're waiting for God to show up in hopelessness and loneliness and what you feel. Maybe God isn't doing anything in a hard family relationship or friendship. Maybe you feel defined by sickness or mental health or loneliness. Maybe you're just stuck in waiting, waiting to see God move in a really difficult situation. And he feels far away. He feels silent. He feels out of reach. Um, that's what I was feeling for sure. And so my heart for this time is that we would use this book of Habakkuk as a guide to learn what it looks like to bring our questions, our concerns, and our disappointments to God and trust that he is working even when we can't see it. So during this time, we're pretty much going to read through the book of Habakkuk, essentially, not the entire book, but we're going to hit most of it. So bear with me. Um, but to give some context, Habakkuk was living in a really hard time in the nation of Judah. He was just, it was falling apart at the seams. Just the king in that time was just not good for these people. Um, it was crawling with idols and worship of pagan gods. And the people were just turning to those things rather than turning to God for help with overcoming evil. Um, and Habakkuk just saw wickedness and immorality and sin everywhere he turned. And he was devastated. He didn't see God moving in this. And he didn't understand why God wasn't doing anything for his people. And so through this story, we're able to kind of step into this back and forth conversation between Habakkuk and God. We get a front row seat into how Habakkuk is dealing with this silence and what it looks like for him to bring those things to the Lord. And so using this lens, um, we're going to go ahead and start reading. Also, this handout kind of goes through the flow of the content. Um, and on the back, there's some blank portions. Don't leave those blank because we're going to come back to that in a little bit throughout this workshop. But let's go ahead and start reading. Um, I'm going to read verse chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You guys are all there. We're good. Okay. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen, or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. So this is just a very passionate prayer of devastation. He's just consumed. We see it. He has whys and how longs just 
that's all he's praying as he views this corruption around him. He's just pleading with God. He's crying out to God. He's like, God, why, aren't, why is this happening? Why aren't you listening? How, much, how long do I have to call out to you and you don't save? Um, he prays for God to be seen, and he's stuck in waiting and stuck in confusion. Why would God not set things right for his people? How can God be good if there's so much evil and sin around? And I love these verses because it's a picture of Habakkuk openly and honestly bringing himself like fully unraveled before the Lord. He's bringing his questions and his doubts. He's bringing his frustrations and disappointments before the Lord. I like to think of these verses as like Habakkuk giving us a permission slip from God to ask him those hard questions. He's modeling how to let God into what we're really feeling. And I think we so often bring ourselves this guarded version to God. We want to show him that we trust him and there's not an inch of doubt in our mind that he will do good things. But deep inside, we have questions and we have confusion and we have long how longs and we have whys. And God doesn't want that version of ourselves. Um, he loves and desires to be let into the depths of our hearts. And I, it's scary because those parts can be messy and we believe that they're unappealing to him. And we just like expect God to wait outside the door while we try to like clean up the room so he doesn't see the messy and chaotic parts of our lives that feel stained to us. And we hide and we hide him from the whys that we want to ask him and the how longs. But when we invite God into that, we invite him to help us clean those up. He wants to show, he wants to know us in the heavy parts, in those messy parts. And he delights in answering our questions and revealing the truth about who he is in that. But we have to invite him into a relationship with us. We have to let him know us because that's ultimately his biggest desire. And that's exactly what Habakkuk is doing as he pleads with God. He's inviting God to know him. And so have you ever wished that you could just take a pen and paper and write something out like this to God, just fully unraveled your feelings? Because that's what we're going to do. So you're going to take the back of your hand out, um, and we're going to practice this. So it's not our natural instinct as humans to believe that God wants our mess and wants those questions and doubts. And so a way to believe it is by practicing it. And so... We're going to practice that, a prayer that doesn't filter out the questions and the doubts and the feelings we have, but instead leans into them. And so is there a space in your life where you feel like God is silent? Are you wondering why he isn't speaking or why he isn't moving? Maybe you feel like Habakkuk left with confusion and frustration and disappointment. Maybe there's a situation that you've been praying about for an extended period of time and you just are waiting for God to give you any indication that he's listening to you, that he's heavy cares maybe. And so I'm gonna give you guys all space to kind of bring that to the Lord and invite him into that so he can know your deep feelings and speak into those feelings. So we're gonna take five minutes and do that. And what I want you to do is ask God the questions that you have. Bring him your whys, bring him your how longs. I'm sure as we read this prayer, there were things that popped into your mind, circumstances that you're in that you can use. Like, bring that to God. Tell him what you feel. Tell him that you feel like he's silent. Tell him that you feel like he isn't working. Tell him those whys and how longs and bring him those unraveled and messy thoughts that you have. And then in about five minutes, we will circle back together and keep reading. So go ahead and do that. Okay, we're going to... Bring it back together. If you guys still want to keep writing, you have more to get out. Feel free to do so, but we're going to go ahead and move on. I wish I could give you all like 10 or 20 minutes to do this, but 
we don't have time for that. So we're going to keep reading. Um, this is God's answer to Habakkuk's first prayer. This is chapter 1, verse 5. Um, you want to read with me? He says, Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces. They seize territories not its own. And so I love this response from God because Habakkuk was complaining. He was giving God everything he was feeling. And in this response, Habakkuk doesn't scold or rebuke, or he's not scolded or rebuked by God for asking those questions, for complaining. God just shows him so much grace. He welcomes those questions. He answers them. And that should bring us great comfort, knowing that we serve a God who longs to respond to the cries of his children. And so looking at these first two verses, what is a word that you see repeated? You can just shout it out if you see it. In verses five and six. Right. Which one? Right. Like I am. Kind of, yeah, that is repeated. That's true. But before that, mm-hmm. the very first word, my translation might be different. Does yours say look? Look. look. Yeah, he says look. And I love this because I feel like when he's saying look, he's like trying to capture Habakkuk's attention. He's like, don't look at what's going on around you. Don't look at the devastation. Like, focus on me. Look at me. He, I just think of like him being this parent who's trying to like guard their child's eyes from like the scary part of a movie. He's like, look at me. God is asking Habakkuk to trust him in the midst of the unknown. He's taking the focus of Habakkuk off of the what is going on and onto the who. He's like, don't dwell on the devastation around you. Don't dwell on the corruption. Look at me and watch what I can do. And you're right. He does say I am. He says, I am doing something in your days that you will not believe. This isn't something Habakkuk is going to do. This is something God is going to do. And so I love this because in the first part, Habakkuk is like praying for God to be seen. And then in the second verse, God's like, look. So it's like, that's a sign of the Lord longing to speak to us when we call out to him. He's saying, look, as this reorientation, when our circumstances stray us away from him, he's quick to reorient our hearts to be dependent on what is consistent, and that is him. But however, this reorientation may look like an unexpected answer or an unforeseen situation, and God tells that to Habakkuk here in the rest of the answer. So let's keep reading verses 1. I'm going to read 7 through 11. So he's still talking about the Chaldeans. Some translations may say Babylonians. Verse 7, they are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings, and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress. They build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. And notice that when it says their strength is their God, the book uses a little g. So this is their God, not God, God. And so basically in this part, God is saying that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, or known as the Babylonians, um, 
to help fix Judah. He explains that this group of people is fierce. They are wicked and deceitful. And it says that their justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. So they're just full of pride. These people are terrible. And God takes the time to call attention to their wickedness and their iniquity in detail. And then he's like, so I'm going to use these terrible people to fix the nation of Judah. He's going to use a nation that's even more corrupt than Judah to fix what's going on in Judah. And so why would God do it this way? And I I bet Habakkuk listening to this is just even more confused than when he started because God's answer doesn't make any sense. So then Habakkuk responds in verse 12. He says, Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent? Well, while one who is wicked swallows up, one who is more righteous than himself, you have made mankind like fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them up all with a hook and catch them on their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. This is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich, their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their nets and continually slaughter nations without mercy? So we see that Habakkuk is still confused. Like his first prayer he's confused, but his second prayer he's also confused because he's still crying out. But now we see that he's embedding his prayers with truth. He says, in the first prayer, he hardly mentions anything about God. He doesn't use God's name. He says, Lord, once. But in the second prayer, we see him using, addressing God's character. He says, my holy one, my rock. He says, Lord, my God. He's crying out, but now he's embedding his prayer with truth about who God is. And from these strong declarations of Habakkuk, we can tell that he knows of God's faithfulness. But at this moment, even though he knows God is faithful, he's still heavy burdened. And he asks for judgment on Judah, on these people. And now there is judgment. God is like, I'm going to do something about it. But now he's upset because God is going to do it a different way than he wanted. He's using a different agent of judgment. And so in Habakkuk's first prayer, he's like, God, why aren't you doing anything? And now in his second prayer, he's like, okay, so you're doing something, but why are you doing it that way? Why would God be using this wicked nation? And so Sometimes the answers that we get don't line up with the answers that we want. And in those cases, I think it's really natural to think that God isn't listening to us or that he isn't moving. And it's like we hold God to this accountable to a good that he never wrote. And we like to run ahead of him and write the script of what we believe should happen, what we believe is good. And then when that doesn't happen, when God responds differently to that, we feel confused and we feel hurt. And God knew everything that was going on in Judah, he says that. He's aware of everything that's going on in us. The motive behind praying to God, praying these things to him, is not to wake him up. He already knows what's going on, but instead praying to him declares our reliance on him, our need to turn to him. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Habakkuk knows that God is sovereign, and if he is sovereign, then he's over all things, meaning he allowed this to happen. He's allowing the wicked Babylonians to pronounce judgment on God's people in Judah, which doesn't make any sense. But we can trust that God is focusing on the eternal while we only see immediate circumstances. 
when everything else in life feels confusing or unknown, we have the foundation of the character and heart of our Father to depend on. And when we stand firm on that foundation of what we already know about God, our finger pointed of offense of accusing God, why are you doing this? Why aren't you working? Will slowly turn into an open hand of surrender. And we see that as we keep reading. Um, So now we're going to read chapter 2, just verse 1. This is my favorite verse in the whole book. It says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. So this verse, this one verse, is what we see Habakkuk's heart posture start to change from complaining and doubting God to wanting to wait and trust in him. And it uses this illustration of a lookout tower. And so back in the day, this time period, military towers would, or military watchmen would elevate themselves on strategically placed lookout towers that would minimize the distractions below and put them in a place to be fully concentrated on the task, which at the time would be watching for enemies or watching for the king to be arriving. And so Habakkuk intentionally uses this analogy to illustrate how much he values communication from the Lord and what he was willing to do to receive it. This verse communicates, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know that you are right in all things. Speak to me and correct me. This posture takes action on our parts. We can't clearly hear what the Lord has to say or see him working in our lives if we are down with our eyes just laser focused on the circumstances we're in. This posture that he's in, standing at the lookout tower, it forces us to wait. And in this one verse, we see Habakkuk move from this posture of waiting to this posture of patience, which to me sounds like the same thing, but I think the more we look at it, waiting is something that you have to do. You can't help but wait. You can complain while you're waiting. You can be upset while you're waiting. But patience is trusting God in that waiting. It's a choice. It's, it's choosing to climb that lookout tower and stand at the top with your hands open saying, God, I want to see you working. I trust that you are working and I want to be ready and expectant to see you and hear you in these circumstances. It takes this paper, the things that you wrote, and believing that God sees these words that you feel. He sees these desires and he sees you and you're waiting. It's where clear communication with God begins. A believer approaching their relationship with a good, good father from an ongoing stance of anticipation, ready and expectant to hear and see what he's doing. And so some of you may be thinking, okay, we climb this watchtower, we get to the top, we put our place ourselves in a place to focus on God and listen to what he has to say. Now what? How do we know what he's saying? Which I feel like is a very big question in our lives. How do we know what God's saying? And in this book of Habakkuk, we see this rhythm of Habakkuk talks, God talks, Habakkuk talks. So it's pretty clear that there is conversation going on. But that doesn't always feel like it to us. We don't always feel that clear of conversation with God. And so we could probably spend a whole other hour talking about how to discern the voice of God. Sadly, we don't have time for that. But when it comes to hearing God, the one thing that I cling to is that hearing God happens through his word. This book right here is God's word. God breathed this into existence so that we could know him deeper, his thoughts, his actions, his voice. So we're going to take a pause from the Habakkuk story. We're going to turn to Genesis 2 and 3, the very beginning of your Bible. So go ahead and flip there. Um, This is a passage that I often find myself turning back to 
when I'm thinking about this topic. So we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 15. And this is the first time when God speaks to man in the garden. These are the first words that he says. So go ahead and turn there, chapter 2, verse 15. Okay, let me go and read it. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to watch it and work over it. The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so I want to I want to zoom in on verse 16. God's first three words to man ever in the Bible says, you are free. He says, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he says, you are free. God is not a God of, of restriction. And yes, there is restriction in this sentence, but we know because he says that we are free, that this restriction was for our protection. God's heart is for us is freedom that's found in him. So keeping that in mind, we're going to flip a page to Genesis 3.1. And this is when the fall happens and the serpent is speaking um, to the woman. And it says, verses three, chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from the tree, from any tree in the garden? And so when we see the serpent repeating to Eve what God had said, his first three words are not, you are free. He says, you can't, you cannot. He says, you cannot eat from any tree in the garden. And so that is a picture of restriction. The enemy's goal is to convince us that God is restricting us, that he's not a God of freedom. His goal is to twist the words of God so we believe that he's holding something from us. And in these situations that we wrote down, maybe you feel like he's holding back his voice or his interest or his care in our circumstances, but that is not who God is. And he tells us that. He says we are free. And he wants us to love his protection because that's what leads to freedom. And so further down in verse chapter 3, verses 2, the next verse, we see Eve and what she says to the serpent. Um, so verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it and, or touch it or you will die. And so Eve also uses those words. She uses the words, you must not, but she tags on something to that verse. She says, you must not touch it or you will die. And we know that in verse one, back when God spoke to Adam, he, didn't, he never said that. And so he said that if they eat it, they will die, not if they touch it. And so what Eve believed was moldable in the enemy's hands because she didn't know the word of God. Satan was able to make her believe that God was withholding goodness from her. But if she knew what God said, if she had meditated on it and knew it deep in her heart and saw that God had her desires and her best at heart, if she knew God's character deeper, then when something comes to stand against that, she would have known that it was not God's voice. It's not what God said. And so God's word, it matters. It's his word. He speaks through it. In John chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, he says, The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. 
He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all of his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. And so we see from this verse, the more that we strive to know God through his word, the more we can decipher what his, what his voice is and what it isn't. So knowing God's word is important because what God speaks to you will never contradict what is in his word, what is in the scriptures. So we need to climb the watchtower. We need to be prepared and expectant because God will speak to the hearts of those who prepare themselves to hear. And conversely, those who do not prepare themselves to hear will hear nothing, even though the word of God is falling upon their outer ears. We are willing to wait for the things that are important to us. And if we value the voice of God like Habakkuk does, we should be willing to wait for it patiently, trusting in his sovereign timing, standing firm until we have received it. And in that, we are ready to see God reveal himself, which is what he does in this next part of the story. So go ahead and flip back to Habakkuk. Um, We're going to start in chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, when God responds to Habakkuk. I'll give you guys time to flip there. So this is God's second answer to what Habakkuk had said before about the watchtower. Chapter 2, verse 2, it says, The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets, so no one, so, so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end, and it will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and will not be late. So it's hard to know how much time is between these two verses because Habakkuk could have been waiting. When he talked about waiting on the watchtower, when he talked about being patient, we don't know how much time was between that moment and when God spoke. He could have been waiting for a long time. But what we do know is that God, through his patience and trust, God was not silent. He continued to engage in conversation with Habakkuk, even though he continued to ask God questions and have doubts. And because Habakkuk's approach to God changed, God's approach to Habakkuk also changed. When the heart posture of Habakkuk changed from doubtful and cynical to honoring and expectant, we see God speak actual instructions and guidance for these situations. So here God is telling Habakkuk that this is an important message. This is a message of hope. He tells him to write it on tablets, not tissue paper, tablets. This is a permanent message that he wants to be clear. He wants it to be easily read. And so to encourage Habakkuk in his patience, he promises Habakkuk some things. In verse 3, he says, The time is appointed. Whatever God has for Habakkuk, it's coming. It will not lie. It won't fail. It, we have to wait for it, and it will not be late. And so we see these promises in this book for Habakkuk, but these are truths that we get to claim for ourselves. We get to cling on to these things just like Habakkuk did, because God's plan for you will come in its appointed time, and it will not delay. We just have to wait for it because it won't be late. The whys and how longs that we believe will end. God promises that. But we have to rest and trust and wait for it. We have to be free from the burden of trying to make things happen and trust that God loves you and wants to fulfill his word in your life. And so keep reading chapter 2, verses 4. We're going to finish this part. Um, He says, look, again, he says, look, 
His ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and death, and like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. So here, God, in his answer, again, mentions the pride and evil and the ego of the Babylonians. And then he says, but, in verse 4, he says, but the righteous one will live by his faith. So this one sentence shows this stark difference between people who live for the Lord and people who don't live for the Lord. True faith looks outside itself. It looks towards the Lord, while pride looks inwardly, which is what God is diagnosing that the Babylonians to be. They're prideful. The life of God's people are ones that are defined and characterized by faith. Um, but we are also tenants to a life where we can't always see what's in front of us, and that makes faith hard, where we have questions, we have doubts that God is moving or speaking. And God designed it to be this way. If we could see what fills in the gaps of our unknowns of what we want to ask God or what lies ahead, there would be no need to trust God. There would be no space for faith or reliance or hope in our Father. And so here, waiting is an expression of our faith. Waiting is faith in action. However, that doesn't mean that waiting is easy. We can often feel discouraged, and as time stretches on and our hope diminishes, um, we might not have hope because the evidence that things will get better, we, don't, we may not see that. Um, but that's because we're hoping for the wrong things. Our faith is what propels us into a state of hope, a hope that's not found in our circumstances around us, what we see around us, but that's founded in the character of God and who he says that he is. And that is exactly what, what God is trying to remind Habakkuk here, that he can put his faith in something foundational, something that's lasting. So when you look at the prayer that you wrote, think about where you're finding your hope. Is it rested in these questions being answered? Or is it founded in knowing that no matter what happens, God promises us that he is with us and he is working and He, what he believes for us will come to pass even when we can't see it. And so a way that this has really helped me kind of grasp this idea, um, I went to school at K-State for interior design. I graduated with that in my undergrad. And while I was in college, I had to take all these textile classes, which, if I'm going to be honest, I didn't really care much about those classes. They were kind of boring. But there was this one tapestry that we learned about that really captured my attention. And it's called the Baye Tapestry. And it's this famous embroidered cloth that stretches, I think, like 70 meters long. And it depicts events from the Norman conquest of England, led by Duke of Normandy. So that all is gibberish to me, honestly. But what is special about this tapestry is the top side makes sense. It tells this beautiful story, but when you turn the tapestry over, it looks like a hot mess. There are knots and tangles, and it looks like the weaver had no idea what he was doing. Um, it's just, there. it looks like there was no plan, like someone just went and chaotically weaved this together, and so we're no longer able to see clearly what the beautiful story on the other side is. And so God's will for our life is like a tapestry. He's an amazing weaver who wants to tell a beautiful story through our lives that when we stand underneath the tapestry and we look up, we see tangles, we see knots, we see a mess. We're stuck trying to make sense of these random threads and snarls and we're left feeling confused 
and maybe we feel like it's all meaningless and we can't see the other side. We can't see the captivating story that God is weaving because our earthly perspective is just limited. We see a weaver without a plan, but from God's perspective, looking down, he sees a beautiful story of his love and plan for our lives. What looks messy and meaningless to us, he sees a perfect and beautiful story in that he has intentional and precise ways that he has weaved this to work in your life, to establish a purpose and a plan from your life. And so the peace and reassurance and hope that we have in our circumstances that we face doesn't come from knowing the details of the tapestry from God's plan for us. It comes with knowing who the weaver is and trusting that the weaver knows what he's doing. So we need to know the heart of our weaver, which is God. We need to trust his character. So when God seems silent, when we look up at that tapestry and we don't know what's going on, we have God's character to fall back on, to be founded on when he seems silent. And knowing the weaver and trusting in his handiwork, knowing that he's a good weaver, is what it looks like to have faith. And so the next, I think, 14 verses of this book are what are called the five woes. And we don't have time to fully go into all of these, but this is where God is addressing sin and brokenness. And so on your roadmap handout, this is the part where God reveals Um, So through this, God is pronouncing judgment on Babylon, on these evil, wicked Babylonians. And he assures Habakkuk through these verses that even though he's going to use this wicked nation to afflict judgment on his people, on Judah, um, that their sinful and prideful ways won't go unnoticed by God. They're not going to be ignored. He's going to rescue the oppressed. And so then we're going to read Habakkuk's third and final prayer, skipping over the five woes. So that's chapter three. Verse 1, if you want to go ahead and flip there. So it says, A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive the work in your years and make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. And so after those two verses, Habakkuk goes into this really long declaration of God's power. He's saying things like his splendor covers the heavens and his earth is full of praise. The mountains will see you and shudder. You split the earth with rivers. Just this prayer of power. It's full of praise, which is non-existent in his first prayer. And so we see him coming to God. Habakkuk is coming to God more for who God is rather than what he wanted because his heart has become tenderized by what he's seen of God's work. And this ricochets him into this posture of just praise, of power of who God is. He's declaring God's strength. And I love this because he's putting God in his rightful place. And when we do that, when we declare his strength and his power over our lives, um, over our situation, we're honoring that. We're acknowledging him as someone who is able to bring that same power and strength into our stories, into our waiting And that same God who is sovereign over the sun and the moon and the heavens and the stars is also sovereign over you and what you pray about and what you feel hopeless about and what you're waiting to be redeemed. And by doing this, by naming God's power, by naming his strength, we're naming him as the mighty weaver who holds each thread of our tapestry. He has a plan for each thread of our tapestry. And through that, he is weaving a beautiful story, even when you can't see it. 
Um, so now we're going to practice Habakkuk's third prayer. So on the last half of your sheet is where we're going to do this. Um, I'm going to just give you space over this prayer that you wrote earlier about crying out to God, giving him your lies and hows. We're going to write a prayer of declaration of who God is. And this declaration doesn't mean that the other prayer that you wrote is wrong or that we need to scratch it out. Both prayers, what we wrote, signify a posture of coming to the Lord. And that's what he wants. He wants us to come to him with a posture of adoring who he is. And we find much more trust and hope and reliance in our certain circumstances. And we, we often find ourselves surrendering what we feel to a God who sees us, a God who sees our doubts and waiting and desires to know us deeper through them, a God who wants to show us the other side of the tapestry through the lens of his character. So I'm going to give you guys space to write a prayer, just to write out to God who he is to you. Tell him that you trust that he is a good God who is for you, a God that is good at being God, and ask him to make these things known in your heart. And so we're going to do this for about three to four minutes, maybe, and then we're going to close with the last passage of the book. So I'm going to give you guys space to do that now. Um, if you guys have are not done with that, um, I just encourage you to take time, maybe in your time with God tomorrow, just to think about this more, to pray about this more, and just give more space to this. But um, we're going to close today with just ending this passage. We're going to read Habakkuk 3, 16 through the end. Um, and this is just a really encouraging part of the story. Um, I just love this part. And so my my Bible says Habakkuk's confidence in God is expressed. And so I love that title, and I think that you'll see that as we read this. But, okay, we're going to read chapter 3, verse 16. Um, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from their pens and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. Mountain heights. And so I love this ending to this book. It just fills my heart with so much encouragement. Um, we won't find hope in the fig trees or the vines or the flocks. These are things that are not sustained without the Creator's hand. They will change. They are going to disappoint us. The things that we desire for our lives are going to disappoint us. But even when we don't get what we want, God is still good. He is good and sore for us. He is unchanging, and we can rest in that because he is the one who is sovereign over, over everything, over the fig trees, over the vines, over the flocks, that it says he is sovereign over all. So that is all we have. Sorry if that was confusing, just flying through that book, but we only have an hour. And so um, I do encourage you guys, if you are interested in soaking in this book more, um, to do so. I sat in this book for a really long time, and I feel like I could still sit in it longer and just see more about who God is. And so um, 